But it's still your favorite, and that's really what matters. We have tonight with us joining. We're we're recording this on Monday night. Um, we have, of course, Mr. Nick's Film School himself, JB. JB, how you doing, bud? It's going good. <laughs> it's it's a subdued hello. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, listen, it's a Monday night. It's an off night. It's a, well, it's pouring rain outside. I was just actually looking out my window at the pouring rain, and then I'm I'm like, oh yeah, it's uh it's not as gloomy as it seems outside because the Knicks are actually playing well. This is very well put. Um, and our guest tonight, we are honored to have this person join us. Uh, he has been covering basketball for quite some time. Uh, he recently went over at the end of the summer to The Athletic, and he's been doing some amazing Knicks coverage. Um, uh, we were just talking off air that I've been a, a big fan of his for quite some time, and that is Moke Hamilton. Uh, Moke, how you doing, man? I'm doing very, very well, and uh, I appreciate the warm introduction and I'm looking forward to topping it up with you guys, man. Like I said, you know, I've been a big fan of the work that I've been seeing coming from uh, from Nick's Film School, you know. And uh, I'm interested in, in having some conversation about some of the stuff we've been looking at the past couple of months. Well, so are we. But but before I get to that, I have to I have to ask you because I am a recovering, reformed, whatever you want to say, lawyer. Uh, that no longer practices, and I'm obviously doing this now in addition to, to teaching. Um, and I was doing some research on you, and I noticed that you are also an attorney by trade. Uh, how did you come to go from that profession to what you're doing now? I think that's so fascinating. Yeah, it's actually funny. Like when I when I myself was in law school, so I actually went to Hofstra Law School out in Hempstead, my hometown, um, out in Long Island. Oh, word! I'm in and, uh, Massapequa Park. I'm right down the oh, block. Okay, well there you go. Um, there's a couple of Long Island guys out there, man. You know, Wally Zerbiak. I think he's from Cold Spring Harbor. Yep. I'm not sure where Alan Hahn is, but uh, Hahn himself is a Long Island guy as well. You know, so it's quite a few of us in in the basketball media fraternity. But um, as far as the transition, you know, I actually do a little bit of of legal consulting now. So it's not like I'm totally outside of the legal field, but obviously it doesn't really overlap with what I do, like in the pro basketball media, which is where, you know, most of the uh, most of the bread is coming from these days. But as far as it's concerned, I just realized a long time ago that there's a, a great, great overlap in being an effective attorney as well as being a good journalist. And I've just been fortunate that my foray into pro journalism has kind of yielded some opportunities for me over the years that I've been able to take advantage of, um, or at least I've tried to take advantage of for the most part. So uh, at this point, I think it's probably fair to say that I kind of straddle the line, but you'd probably be surprised to know how many attorneys there are in the media and working within pro sports and yeah, and right. definitely in pro basketball like there's a, there's a significant overlap in the skill sets yeah well it's funny because i know too um you know one of the areas i think the athletic wants you focusing on is salary cut cap stuff which is an area i like to dive into and my background isn't law it's actually um economics mm. and 
it's just I think because of the business of basketball now where, you know, you have to read these like dense documents to understand the rules of just right. pulling off a simple trade. Um, like you said, maybe maybe these skills, maybe the kind of the old fashioned uh, skills you learn in, in journalism sc uh, school, while still valuable, like in any industry, you need to sort of update or augment with some of these other skills because um, that's really what you're breaking down more than just the basketball on the court. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And, and the funny thing is, just in terms of like my personal story and, and my progression, one of the things that was really kind of a, a big break for me personally was the lockout back in 2011, that was, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, it was LeBron's second year with the Heat. So, yeah, 2011. Right, right, right. And the thing is, um, so shout out to, to Tommy D. Who is uh, a good a good friend of mine? Um, Tommy's he's a like, friend of ours as well. Yep, he's a friend of ours too. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So to Tommy's like a brother to me, but for me at that time, I was still in law school, and I was I would say I was one of the local experts on the NBA's 2008 collective bargaining agreement. So I shouldn't say 2008. I should say the CBA's prior to the 2011 agreement. You know, I, I kind of knew those things like the back of my hand. Um, and, uh, you know, during during undergrad, I wrote a senior thesis on income inequality in the NBA based on race. Wow, and cool. um, so that was my undergraduate thesis at, at Columbia University. Um, I graduated 2007. And in doing that, I had the opportunity to kind of make some some connections at the NBA and at the Players Union. And I was kind of able to to sort of uh, foster relationships there for a couple of years. And when I decided to go to law school, which I went in 2008 is when I began, I just kind of developed those interests and got into labor law and was studying collective bargaining agreements and contracts and stuff like that. And then as it related to pro sports and to the NBA specifically. So by the time that lockout came around in 2011, I was actually nearing the end of my law school career at Hofstra. And by that point, I'd gained a little bit of notoriety in the media. But Tommy, who was with SNY Sportsnet New York at the time, he was kind of digesting some of my stuff. And he actually invited me um, to come and discuss the lockout and a lot of the, the labor law stuff and a lot of the, the elements behind what the disagreement between the players and the owners were at that time. And one thing led to another uh, at SNY, you know what I mean? But I, I definitely, you know, Tommy and I have been great friends since. He definitely gave me a great opportunity there. And, um, yeah, so as an attorney, you know, that definitely was a pivotal point in my personal journey. And, right. um, you know, so so shout out to to the, the league and to the players for that work stoppage in 2000. <laughs> <laughs> it helps so much. Right? It helps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'd probably lose all of our listens. But me with my economics background and, and you talking about um, doing your thesis on income inequality, I think we could uh, really go deep on that subject if it was up to me. But to stick with the Knicks, I guess, and kind of the salary cap theme um, I did want to throw one question kind of related to you that way with what what happened with Noah in terms of deciding to stretch him at the beginning of the year? Um, did you, I guess, looking at it from your perspective as someone who understands, you know, how the cap works, kind of the, the labor mechanics of it, how were you, I, I'm not going to ask, did you think it was a good move or not? Just 
how in your mind are you sort of analyzing what's happening there? Are you thinking a little bit in terms of Noah's perspective on, you know, he signed a contract based on the service that he provided. A lot of times, remember, players are underpaid, right, for a lot of their career, and then they get a big contract, and then fans want them to live up to that contract. But in many ways, the contract is paying you for the work you did before, right? So, yeah, like I said, I'm just more interested in maybe less than, like, is it a good or bad move for the Knicks? But just from your perspective, which I think is a unique one, how that whole situation unfolded, um, you know, if you had any thoughts to add on that. Yeah, I, I actually do. I've put a lot of thought into this. And I think one of the things that's really important, you know, as as fans and as people that are kind of outside and not that I'm inside, like I'm I'm no Adrian Wojnarowski or anything like that, you know, but I've definitely been around the block and you, you kind of have to see the entire picture and you definitely have to understand politically how things work in the NBA. So the gross majority of superstar players in the NBA are represented by maybe one of eight different agents or eight different agencies. Right. And the the extent of control that agents and agencies have on where players end up playing is very, very great. That That's one thing. And the second thing is at the end of the day, you know, the NBA is comprised of a, a unionized workforce. These guys are a fraternity. These guys stick together. And the treatment of players and how players are handled plays a big, big role in which teams even get interviews with certain players. So one thing that I can tell you as a fact that Steve Mills sort of assuming the helm in New York understood was, you know, when you think about Steve and his his uh, his tenure in New York, wearing a bunch of different hats, you know, this is a guy who's been working for Madison Square Garden for about 20 years now. So he's someone who has a perspective going way back to the Dave Checkett's days. You know what I mean? It's Steve, been a while with with Steve. Yes, he's been here. Right. And now I know that there are some people that, you know, feel positively about Steve and feel negatively <laughs> about Steve, yeah, you yeah. know. And without even getting into that, what I can tell you is he understands that a lot of what happens on the court is impacted by the politics and by things that happen off the court. So being Steve Mills, being Scott Perry, being David Fisdale, it might be easy for a fan to say, oh, well, just tell Noah to sit at home for the rest of the season and then just cut him this summer because right. it'll it'll help you create more cap space. That's an easy thing for us to say. But when a player wants to play and when a player is representing that he's physically able to play, it's not in the best interest of a team or its leadership to tell a guy to sit at home and rot, particularly a guy who only has maybe a few more years left in his career. So I think it would have been a very bad move personally for the Nick organization in the long run and in the grand scheme of things to drag out the situation with Noah. I know you said you didn't really want my personal opinion, but yeah, my no, personal no, no, I think that's that's a great point. Well, yeah, I, my, my, I wanted your personal opinion because yeah. <laughs> I've been shouting what you just said from the rooftops yeah. since this summer. So thank you yeah. for that. Yeah. So so I mean, bottom line for the Knicks, it was not a great situation from the time Phil Jackson gave Noah the contract. I think everybody was kind of scratching their heads, wondering what in the world was he thinking. But 
based on everything, I think the team probably made the right decision. Is it going to stink to pay the guys so much money to not play for the next, I guess, three and a half years now? Yeah, that's not it's not a good look, but I don't think they would have won had they continued to let this thing drag out, especially because it probably would have cost them Noah Vonley. And he's yeah, someone right. who has obviously paid major dividends for them to this point. So, so it's it's funny you bring up Vonley because and and it's funny that you bring him up on the the tail end of talking about um, Steve uh, Steve Mills and Scott Perry uh, because obviously the two of them made a decision to go with with David Fisdale as the coach here this year. And in your, you wrote a wonderful piece on Vonley and his relationship with Ed Davis. And if you're listening. Pause the podcast and go read that if you haven't already because of all the pieces that you've written this year. I think that that one's probably my favorite. Um, just delving into the relationship between two players. And that's the kind of stuff we don't see a lot of. But um, anyway, you had a quote in there, and it was from Ed Davis, uh, saying that Fizdale is one of the coaches where he doesn't care about your name or where you get drafted. He's going to play who he thinks can help um, the team win. And I'm curious... How so that that mentality that you know essentially according to to Davis kind of got Vonley here, maybe got some other guys here this summer. Maybe see, I, I I know where this question is going. Is it, <laughs> I, well, know, uh, I know where this question. Where is do going. you think it's going? I'm curious. I, I think I think it's going to be something about Fisdale's relationship among NBA players and the NBA fraternity, well, and and even players that never played for him, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, well, I which think is it's funny. It's even more. It's even more discreet. I guess my my question generally is this, or it's a two part question, and, and answer it however you want. Right. Do you think that Mills and Perry were kind of cognizant of we want to get a coach with that type of philosophy in place when when we make this hire? And two, which you kind of already alluded to, how big a role does that play, especially since you just talked about it's a small league in terms of the the very few agents that are real power players here. And is it that big of a deal that those agents are going to want their clients to go to a place where they know, listen, doesn't matter the name on the back of the jersey, it matters what you do once you get on that practice court. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a pro and a con to that philosophy as far as the agents are concerned, to, to be honest with you. But I'll, I'll get to that in one second. But as far for the first, I guess, the first part of the question with Mills and Perry, I, I would like to believe. So I think most of us got wind of the fact that Fisdale was kind of the favorite very early in the process. So just thinking back to the timeline, I don't even remember. I don't really remember what what month it was. I'm I'm getting a little long in the tooth. It man, was. So. I, I mean, I th- I think we heard the first names kind of as the first round of the playoffs was just getting started. Yeah. So like April. Yeah. It was April. Yeah, right? Aprilish. Yeah, yeah. I figured. Yeah, yeah. So so we've had Fisdale is kind of having the inside track for for a while. I mean, a bunch of guys in New York were hearing that, and every time you heard somebody else's name being mentioned as being interviewed, and oh, they're considering. You know, they're considering David Blatt or whatever. I think the gross majority of us and certainly I felt like it was all just a matter of due diligence. You know, Mm -hmm. the Knicks are, you know, when you look back at the past few head coaches, I mean, we haven't really had a a head coach in New York City last as many as five years and in quite some time. So I think for Perry, he wanted to make sure that he was making a good decision. And I think he just wanted to make sure he was making an informed decision. So. Uh, they, I would say that they were very well aware of what they were getting with Fizz. 
in in terms of his relationship uh, i'm sorry in terms of his reputation as being a coach who's going to play sort of the best players that you know give 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 the team the best chance to win etc that's good for players like Emmanuel Moudier and for players like Noah Vonley and even Mario Hazonia, for players that kind of came in the league being heralded as, as having skills and talents of, of difference-making NBA players, it's a good thing because these are guys who really, if you ask them, would say, oh, well, I didn't really get an opportunity to show what I could do under under Frank Vogel or mm-hmm. under right. whichever other coach I had previously. So I want to go play for a guy who's going to give me a shot. And right. Fisdale having that rep, it helps him. But for other players, I mean, think about think about someone like Bradley Beal, for example, right now with the Wizards. Sure, yeah. For, for someone like Beal, who's on a team that's underachieving, if he's told that he's going to go play for a coach that's not afraid to, to yank him and play a, a kid like a Frank Nilakina or Alonzo Trier over him, he might not like the sound of that. So, you know, you, you might look at it and say, oh, well, if the guy's a winner and if he's a hard worker, then he shouldn't feel threatened by that. But at the same time, I think all of us need to understand that there might be 15 guys in a locker room. And yes, they do comprise one team. But at the end of the day, the 15 guys in the locker room are 15 individual entrepreneurs and entities that are are all concerned about their personal branding and about their next contract so I, i think it depends on the player but i will say if i'm building a franchise i want that type of culture and i want that type of accountability on my bench so i i mean i think going back to may when when i was when i was doing radio and when i was doing a lot of stuff very out in the open and in the public during the nba playoffs everything that i had was about supporting david fisdale as the hire for the knicks because i thought that he was the right type of guy for the job yeah and like you said i think about the mix of the team and even thinking back when you're talking about steve mills being with the organization for a long time i think what's often overlooked and this is true i think for any organization uh, you know, whether you work for a, a restaurant or a, a bigger company or a basketball team, you know, the mix does matter, right? So, you know, if you're just in a regular job and, and you have a position for several years and you have a, a different boss, the results of your team might be drastically different than if you have a lot of the same people that stay on that team, but you might change the boss or you might change the order where now the assistant is now, you know, the head. Right. And I think with with Mills, I think we're starting to see that now. And I think with Fisdale, for him to come in and be with this group of 15 guys, and I, and I was going to ask you about Moutier next, and I think this applies to him maybe the most in the sense of what, as fans, we're able to see, is for him to have a group that's looking for someone to both, you know, clearly be someone that's relatable that they don't just see as barking orders and doesn't really understand where they're coming from, but also someone who is willing to hold them accountable as a means to kind of prop them up and to build them back up. It's almost like the perfect marriage right now. If Fizdale had come, like you said, and and there were still some other veterans on the team and maybe this speaks back to Noah again, like there's one thing about having him sit at home. Some fans said, maybe just have him play this season. Well, you know, maybe that one player who, again, it's not his fault, just has different goals in mind, it changes that mix. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, you think with with Moutier in particular, who obviously has been, I mean, I can't believe that dunk he did last night. Still, I got to keep watching the replay. <laughs> but I mean, do you think that that feeds a lot into? I mean, Fizdale said last night in the post game he didn't have to change much to his game. It's about confidence. Do you think it can be that big of an impact we see in a player just from being with the right people around them? It's not even there's so much changing what they're doing. They're just changing the the people around them. Confidence, I think confidence plays a, a major, major role in how a player performs. Mainly, I mean, guys get to the NBA for a reason. You know, just getting to the NBA, it, you usually get there for a reason. Whether or not your, your skills translate is another question. But when you, when you, when you watch a guy and, and you see that his shot mechanics are different or that his shooting percentages is, is way off, or that his decision making seems seems terrible. If you really watch the game and you see some of the things he does on the court, guys don't typically get dumber when they get to the NBA. <laughs> right. So 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 I I kind of feel like you know if a guy's not fast enough, if he can't, if it's athleticism, then I'll say okay, you know what, this guy just might not be able to translate. But when it comes to things related to making decisions or making the right reads or reacting correctly on the defensive end or on the offensive end or what have you, a lot of the time that can be coaching, and a lot of the time it can be confidence. So, so yeah, I think who a, a particular player has in his ears is definitely an important part of the equation as to whether or not he he makes the leap to the league and ends up being as effective as, as people thought he could be when he got drafted in the first place. So as that relates to Moutier, personally, you know, obviously he's uh he's he's kind of opened some eyes a bit with his play over the past couple of past couple of games, I guess past couple of uh, past five games, I guess I would say. Um, you know, to the extent that it's quote-unquote real or a mirage. I think ultimately the way that I feel about these types of things is that time reveals all. <laughs> right, and, yeah. and, and, and part Very of the true. reason part of the reason why is because, you know, I sit here and I, I just think about it off the top of my head. And let's see, um, Brandon Jennings, uh, Tony Delk, Mo Williams, and I could probably think of one or two more guys that, that scored 50 points in a game. Yeah. These three guys each scored 50 points in a basketball game. So it's not that difficult to catch lightning in the bottle and to perform like that for one game or five games or what have you. But something that that I just recently came to know. So all teams employ head coach uh, assistant coaches. Right. Most of the assistant coaches are, are doing are doing advanced scouting. So if a team has three assistant coaches, you know, for the next four weeks, the team will work out a schedule where Coach A is going to scout these teams, Coach B is going to scout these teams. So going into every game, every team literally has a a docket of what to expect from their opponent on that given night. Now, right. I think one of the benefits to what Fisdale's been doing with his team is it's really, really difficult for advanced scouts to catch on to any one of the Nick players right now because he has so many different guys in and out of rotation. <laughs> yeah, and the lineup's changing every night. Yep, that's yeah, right. so, so, so they don't really know what to prepare for. And if you think about Jeremy Lin and the way he destroyed everybody, and I, yeah. I was there that night against the Lakers. Oh, wow. And that's a good that point. was the loudest I'd ever 
ever heard Madison Square Garden really? personally, personally wow. being yeah, in the know, building. I've heard a lot of people say uh, say that where, it, you know, even Garden employees who are there every single night where they say, if you think it was the playoffs or something that, you know, that 2013 year, it was Linsanity. That's when the Garden was about as loud as it has ever been. I, I don't recall being in the building and it being louder than that. And in particular, I remember the one play where Lynn, I think he kind of crossed up, maybe it was Ron Artest on the perimeter and he got to the basket and Pau Gasol jumped out to try to contest him. And he like just Euro stepped around Gasol and he made a reverse layup. Um, it was the fourth quarter of the game. It probably put them up by nine points or so. And at that moment, that was the loudest I'd ever heard Madison Square Garden in person, in person, you know. But anyway, I say all I say all that to say part of the reason why Jeremy Lin was able to do all of what he did was because teams didn't really know what to expect from him. I think thereafter, once teams started to zero in on him and understand that his left was really weak and that he couldn't really shoot off the dribble that well going to his left. Well, you know what? That Miami game, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You oh, know, I remember teams, that one. Yeah. Te- that teams kind of, they started to load up on him and they started to funnel him into the areas where they felt he was weaker. And, you know, if, if Moutier continues to perform the way he has, he's going to start to be the, uh, not the beneficiary. What's the opposite of beneficiary? He's going to be. He's going to be on the, I don't know, the, the bad end of the <laughs> short end of the stick. Yeah, he's yeah, going to get yeah, the short yeah. end of that stick, man. You know, so I think time will reveal it. What I will say, if you're a Moutier fan, what you can be very happy about are the turnovers. So the past five yeah. games, he's only turned the ball over one and a half times a game. As a rookie, I want to say he was averaging a bit. Uh, he was averaging over three a game, and it was part of the reason why people didn't think he had the chops to be a point guard at this level. So the one point five turnovers a game, be very happy about that. Aside from that, fifty three percent from the field. That's you know you're not you're not going to get better than that from most point guards in the league. So to the extent that he can keep those things up, well, you know what? Now you might be talking. So to the extent that. You know, I, I think a lot of fans are happy about what Moody is doing, what Vonley is doing. Um, you know, even Cantor uh, showed a little defensive chops uh, last night, which is not something I, I thought that I would ever say. Wait, he's, um, been, he's been quote tweeting you guys, hasn't he? Uh, Cantor? Uh, he has. He has. Actually, funny enough, it was last Thanksgiving. I put out a video showing his defense because at the beginning of last year, I was trying to just prove the point to people that. When you say a player is bad defensively, we get it. Like over, we're talking about with Moody, over a large sample size, sample size, you could see that. But it doesn't mean a player can't have like a little stretch where they're good. So I, funny enough, made a video of a, a stretch that Cantor play good on defense. And I remember it just because it was on Thanksgiving. He he just took he took the video and he put it out on his account. And I was like, all right, if we're talking about <laughs> defense, he's going to notice that. Thank you, Ennis. Uh, um, so the the point that I was making is, you know, that there's definitely a segment of the fan base that is happy about what's going on because I think, you know, there's a belief that it it all kind of goes into that pot that it's like, you know, you're building the culture, you're building the organization as a place where, you know, like we were talking about before, guys could come and improve and and all that good jazz. Then there's another segment of the fan base that basically has the opinion that if you're not playing Kevin Knox or and Frank Nilakina, um and Mitchell Robinson, assuming he doesn't get um, 
enough fouls to disqualify him beforehand. Um, if you're not playing them, you know, 25 to 30 minutes a night, you are doing your franchise and you are doing your uh, fan base a disservice because, you know, that's what this season should be about, that there's only the best way to develop players is to throw them out there for extended minutes and let them learn on the fly. Do you come down on, on one side of the other or the other of this debate, or is it kind of like a case-by-case basis for you? What do you think? I, I definitely would say case-by-case basis, and I think that what's – so where the Knicks kind of find themselves, and I can tell you that a lot of what was sold to Fisdale when he was taking the job, and I think he was taking the job in New York no matter what, but the, the strategy for the Knicks organization, even though Scott Perry – wouldn't really dance with this topic in any of his availabilities over the summer is they're really taking a long look at what they're doing. And they're really trying to be very, very strategic about what they're doing. And what my understanding of their situation is, is that they're married to very few players on the roster right now. David, David Fisdale has a lot of say and a lot of authority over what the Knicks are going to end up doing in terms of their personnel. And he himself is trying to figure out what they have on the team. So am am I saying that, you know, so Porzingis, I think you can rest assured that the Knicks are going to do everything they can to keep Porzingis on the roster, right? But coming into this, Scott Perry and Steve Mills, these guys are on the same page, and they understand that actually turning the corner and helping the Knicks become a contending team is going to take a combination of drafting well and getting lucky via free agency. So I only say all that to say, yes, you want to be playing Nilakina and Kevin Knox and these guys you think are going to be here for a long time. You do want to play them and, and give them opportunities to develop. But at the same time, if you can play Emmanuel Moutier and have him restore his value a little bit, Right. And and for all we know, if he plays very well, who's to say that a team like the Houston Rockets yeah. or a team yeah. like the mm-hmm. Sacramento Kings might not say, you know what, this, this kid might actually be able to play a little bit. All right. Tell you what, Knicks, we'll take Courtney Lee off of your hands. We know you want to get rid of the guy because you want that cat money. We'll take Courtney Lee. Worst but kept secret gonna, in the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> but but you're gonna have to give us Moutier and and give give us a second round pick in 2020. Just get give us those two things and we'll take Courtney Lee off your hands. Now if you're Scott Perry, maybe that's a deal you make. Maybe it's not. But it's only even an opportunity for you if you allow some of these guys on your team to play up their value. Coaches and GMs refer to that as a pump and dump, okay? (laughs) And I think at this point we can conclusively say that that is the strategy that the Knicks are employing. I mean, they have – what do they have? 12 different players that have started at least three games this season? at this point. They they have eight players that have started at least nine games. At this point right now on a night-to-night basis, we don't even really know who's in the rotation for Fizz. Right. I think I think it's by design. I think they know what they're doing. And I think they're trying to be strategic about who's getting playing time and what kind of numbers guys are able to to actually put up. And I will just tell you that Mike D'Antoni back when he was here, or maybe right after he left, I should say, he went on record as letting people know 
that that was Donnie Walsh's strategy. Play guys, get their numbers up, let's try to get them out so we can go sign LeBron James and Chris Bosh. All right, so this is something that teams actively do. As I said, at this point, I, I think the proof is in the pudding that that's part of the Knicks' strategy for this season. And again, to understand it, you just have to take a long view and you have to understand that they're trying to turn the corner, become a contender over the next few years, not win 28 games versus 17 games. You know, they're, they're kind of yeah, yeah. taking a longer it, view on the whole thing. I love that you said that. And, and just a very quick follow-up and then, and then we'll get you out of here. Um, Tim Hardaway Jr., because I know fans are going to ask me if I don't ask you, um, do you think he falls under that same umbrella that if the right deal came along um, for a team that actually viewed Hardaway uh, on his current contract as an asset that they this regime would move him? I think... So I don't have any source information. So this is straight sure. up, straight up opinion on my part. Totally. I th- I think that the, I think the Knicks would move out any player that they could, except for Porzingis and Kevin Knox. Now, what I can tell you about Tim Hardaway is that, well, obviously Steve is the one that kind of gave Hardaway the contract. Steve Mills is a very big fan of Tim Hardaway. Major part of the reason why Hardaway came back to the organization in the first place, from what I understand, wasn't in favor of trading him in the first place. So, Hmm. you know, that's definitely something that I think would come into play. But at the end of the day, I don't think any player on this roster is untouchable. Now, if you ask me if the Knicks would trade Tim Hardaway in a salary dump, straight up salary dump at this point, I don't think they would do that. And I only think they would do that if they got a very, very, very strong indication from an agent or someone inside of the NBA community that they would definitely or as close to definitely as possible have a shot at either Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving or some other superstar player that would definitely help them turn the corner and if they were sure for some reason that they couldn't otherwise accomplish the cap space by moving out Courtney Lee. I think that's the only time you would see Tim Hardaway get traded in a salary dump. So said differently to Nick fans, what I would say is if anything like that happened with Tim Hardaway, go to Mitchell and Ness or whoever and start getting them <laughs> custom Kevin Durant. And get a, yeah, and get them, and get them ready. Cause, I mean, cause they're not, they're not going to just give Hardaway away for nothing especially based on what he's shown so far. He's played pretty yeah, well. That's a great that, point. That's, that's the best kept, not real secret, you know, because obviously you look at his numbers and, and he's been playing well. But, um, some you know, Knicks fans are more excited with the young guys, understandably. But the last one for me, I guess, picks up on the last two points you made is, you know, I maybe this is the economist to me, but. You know, and, and I, as, from a management standpoint, I you, thought you said communist you, for a second. Oh, uh, economist. <laughs> yeah, let's let's make sure we. <laughs> I was like, hey man, I'm I'm, I'm all for that man. Share the love, you know. Share the love, right? Trade, share well, the money. But don't say you know, it too loud. Salary... You never know who's listening. You know? <laughs> that's right. With the salary cap, I guess you know some players probably think that's what it is like, right? Um, but no, it's just like you're looking at these players sort of as assets from a management standpoint. So to your point, they're. You know, if they can add value, so if you could take a Moutier who had low value, build up his value and turn him into some other asset that's greater than what you have, you do it. So I guess the question to me with Hardaway is, yeah, understandably from a salary standpoint, they're probably not going to try 
to just dump his salary unless they really need that added salary space. But that said, with so many teams, I think I think it's something like 49% of players are going to be free agents next summer, which means that's a lot of money coming off teams' books. I'm starting to wonder if a player like Tim Hardaway Jr., that forget now what he's making because so many teams are going to have cap space, it's the term and the age. So you got a player who's 26 and he's only going to have two years of term left. Do you think that maybe the the way we've all been looking at it is a little backwards and saying it's always been he just takes up too much cap space and that's the problem that needs to be solved if you are trying to move him and instead start looking at it maybe starting the summer as he's a valuable player with only two years of term and maybe we turn him into just, again, improving upon that asset where maybe you're getting a younger player or you're getting draft picks. Do you, do you think teams will start looking at that term a little different with so much money coming off the books this summer? I think it's possible. I think it's definitely possible. But at the end of the day, I think that the the mid-level exception is always going to – I mean, right now – and it, okay, so right now and I think for the foreseeable future, NBA general managers tend to to look at players and their worth in terms of what kind of salary structure they'd be able to give them and how many wins over replacement value that particular player is worth, and then whether or not the difference between those two things is actually worth it for them in the long run. So so said differently, mid-level exception, I don't even know exactly what it is right now, $8 million or something like that? Yeah, around there, eight and a half, yeah. So, okay, so I think that the the typical, I mean, as long as he has smart guys in his front office, right, they would look at it and they would say, okay, is Tim Hardaway Jr. much better than a player that I'd be able to get for eight and a half million dollars per year? And if he is, is he 10 or 11 million dollars per year better than that player? I think that is probably an individual analysis that each NBA team would have to do, because at the end of the day, you're always going to have teams. And and now when we're, you know, we're talking about John Wall potentially getting traded and, and December 15th is coming around. So we're going to see the trade market open up quite a bit. People always look at the dollar amount. But I think for teams like the Charlotte Hornets, like the Sacramento Kings, even the Utah Jazz to a certain extent, Teams that are not in sexy markets mm-hmm. where players say, oh, yeah, you know, I want to move my family to 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 Salt Lake City because it's going to be a, a great a great living situation for us. Right. Like teams that are not in New York, not in L.A., not Houston, not Boston, they're always going to have their eyes open for players that are under contract for reasonable sums of money that they think could help replace a mid-level player, even if it only means one or two more wins for the team, because these are teams that are less concerned with counting their beans because they might not have the opportunity to spend those dollars in free agency anyway, if if that all makes sense. So a guy like Tim Hardaway Jr., I think, will always have value to other teams around the league. Uh, And when you when you think about, you know, think about guys like uh, Kent Bazemore is one that comes to mind right now. Uh, Kentavious Caldwell Pope was paid $20 million last year by the Lakers, even though it was only a one-year deal. But but the point is, you know, we look at the Hardaway deal, and in terms of the dollar amount, if you look at his numbers, I'm not sure that it's actually 
it's actually a, a gross overpay for what he's given the Knicks so far. I think for most people, the reason why they kind of threw their hands up in frustration and kind of scratched their heads was because it didn't seem like the Knicks needed him yeah, when right, they signed yeah. him. Right. Exactly. And, and not right. not for that much money. But I think he's a productive player. I don't think his, his contract is bad. And I think that he certainly will always have some economic value, particularly to those smaller market teams. Uh, Moak, it has to say it's been a pleasure to oh, have it's you over on. Already? Oh, y'all kicking me out already? I'm thinking we went over about 20 minutes. <laughs> we keep talking all night. No, man. No, it's, uh, it's, it's all good, man. It's I, all I, good. Listen, you got a you got a piece. I know you have to to get to write. And I let me preface this by saying that I know the athletic does not need me to say this, but if you're out there and you. You like sports. Forget about just the NBA or the Knicks. Like, if you're not, it's essentially like a dollar a week, I think, to get the athletic. If you're not doing that, you're you're doing yourself a disservice because I, I know there's like a whole bunch of yahoos out out there like us putting out all kinds of content. Good content is hard to find, and you, obviously you in particular. But you know, you guys got a great team over there with Vork and and a couple of the other guys. It's like it's a pleasure to dig into one of your pieces, and I, I look forward to reading them whenever you drop one. I'm looking forward to reading whatever you got that you're going to be working on tonight, and uh, you know, just the opportunity to, to kind of shoot the shit about the Knicks has been uh, a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Man, I didn't know we were allowed to use four-letter bombs. Yes, you told me <laughs> earlier. Man. Oh yeah, yeah. Only at the end of the podcast. podcast. We, oh we man. Like I would have been light. I would have been lighting the airwaves up over here. No, Are you uh, thanks. Thanks, yeah. thanks a lot for having me, man. I, I hope we're able to do it again soon. All right, listen. The, the invitation is always open. So uh, thank you, um, JB. Uh, thanks for coming on your own podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> appreciate that. Um, anything we gotta say before we go? No, no. I think I think we're good. There's plenty up on the site to read. And yeah, thanks again, Moak. And yeah, we, we did it shorter this time. And now you know you can swear. So now we have an excuse to invite you back next time. All right. Cool. <laughs> cool. Perfect. All right. Uh, and you out there, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Next Film School podcast. We're so happy you joined us. And uh, we, like JB said, have a ton of great stuff up on the site. More coming this way. Let's keep this winning streak going, baby. Here we go. <laughs> New York Knicks. Thanks for chiming in. Get on.